From New York, this is Democracy Now! It is with much sadness and sorrow that I think of the victims of the very serious shipwreck off the coast of Greece in recent days, and it seems that the sea was calm. I renew my prayer for those who lost their lives, and I implore that everything possible be done to prevent such tragedies. A titanic disparity. How the world responds to maritime disasters. As many as 700 migrants are feared dead in a shipwreck last week off the coast of Greece. But the stories receive far less attention than the search for five passengers aboard a submersible on a trip to view the wreck of the Titanic. Investigators now say the five died in a catastrophic implosion. Then we go to the occupied West Bank as tensions soar with Jewish settlers attacking Palestinian villagers and Israel launching drone and helicopter gunship attacks. Then the Palestine Laboratory, how Israel exports the technology of occupation around the world. The tools and technologies that Israel's using, whether it's spyware or smart walls or intelligence gathering or facial recognition or drones, are increasingly exported around the world and found in over 130 countries across the globe. So it shows that the occupation of Palestine is exported. It's a massive export business. We'll speak with independent journalist and author Anthony Lowenstein. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden welcomed Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi to the White House Thursday, praising a new era in U.S.-Indian relations on Modi's second day of a lavish visit to the U.S. that's been condemned by human rights advocates. The two leaders announced a series of new initiatives, including a landmark deal for General Electric to build military jet engines in India. Modi delivered a speech to a joint session of Congress, was later feted at a state dinner with the president and the first lady, Jill Biden. In a rare occurrence, Modi accepted questions from journalists during a news conference with President Biden. Wall Street Journal reporter Sabrina Siddiqui, who is Muslim, pressed Modi on human rights concerns and asked him what steps he's taking to improve the rights of Muslims and other minorities in India and press freedom there. It's believed to be the first question Modi took from a journalist at a news conference since 2015. We have always proved that democracy can deliver. And when I say deliver, this is regardless of caste, creed, religion, or gender. There's absolutely no space for discrimination. In Sudan, residents began fleeing the southwestern city of Kadugli Thursday as a new front opened between Sudan's army and the rebel group known as the Sudan People's Liberation Movement North. Sudan's army says fighters with the group broke a longstanding ceasefire agreement this week and attacked Sudanese military units. In the capital Khartoum, heavy fighting continues between Sudan's army and the rival paramilitary rapid support forces. Elsewhere, activists say they've identified 500 bodies across the city of El Jenena the capital of Sudan's western Darfur region. Witnesses say thousands more bodies remain uncollected in the city's streets after paramilitaries and allied Arab militias stepped up attacks on non-Arab residents of the region. Aid workers say tens of thousands of people fleeing the violence for neighboring Chad have also faced violence and sexual assault. Laura Locastro, the U.N. refugee agency's representative in Chad, spoke to refugees who survived the journey. 
They described terrifying scenes in which everyone had to flee for their lives. There were massacres, and as they fled, they sometimes unfortunately had to leave behind little children who couldn't run. People were injured, and the elderly. Authorities in Greece have rescued 145 migrants who are found stranded on an island in the Everest River on the Greek-Turkish border. Thursday's rescue came as shocking details continued to emerge about how Greek Coast Guard officials failed to save hundreds of migrants who drowned last week after their overcrowded fishing vessels sank off the Greek coast. El Pais reports Greek authorities were tracking the ship for more than 12 hours, never activated a rescue operation even after the ship's engine broke down. In the Atlantic Ocean, rescue crews have called off a multinational, multimillion-dollar operation to locate five people aboard the missing Titan submersible after debris from the vehicle was discovered Thursday near the wreckage of the Titanic. Engineers say the sub's operator, OceanGate, failed to properly account for design failures in the submersible, which was never certified to withstand the crushing pressures of the deep ocean. It's believed the sub's pilot, OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush, died instantly, along with four passengers who paid $250,000 each for the adventure. This is Rush speaking in a 2022 documentary by a Mexican filmmaker. I'd like to be remembered as an innovator. Um, I think it was General MacArthur said, you're remembered for the rules you break. And, you know, I've broken some rules to make this. I think I've broken them with, with logic and good engineering behind me. The carbon fiber and titanium, there's a rule you don't do that. Well, I did. The Wall Street Journal reports a top-secret U.S. Navy acoustic detection system designed to spot enemy submarines heard what the U.S. Navy suspected was the Titan submersible implosion just hours after it began its voyage. In climate news, Beijing is suffering its warmest June heat wave on record, with high temperatures in the Chinese capital Thursday climbing above 41 degrees Celsius or 106 degrees Fahrenheit, its hottest June day since records began. In Mexico, a searing heat wave has driven record demand for electricity, with reports of blackouts in a dozen states this week. The extreme heat extends into the United States, where parts of Texas and other southern states face excessive heat warnings into next week. This comes as smoke from massive wildfires continues to trigger air pollution warnings in Canada and parts of the U.S., with unhealthy air quality forecast for Chicago and much of Wisconsin today. The Union of Concerned Scientists reports half the U.S. population has faced an extreme weather alert so far this year. Meanwhile, a new study published in the journal Nature Sustainability finds Earth's ecosystems are degrading from global heating even more rapidly than previously thought, with one in five ecosystems, including the Amazon rainforest, at risk of passing a crucial tipping point by the end of the century. In Mexico, human rights advocates are demanding justice for two environmentalists assassinated in separate attacks in the state of Mexico earlier this month. Alvaro Arvizu and Cuauhtémoc Márquez were forest and water defenders who fought against extractivism in the region. Márquez, who was also a beekeeper, was shot dead near his home on June 12th. The day later, Arvizu died after being brutally assaulted by a group of unknown assailants with what appeared to be an axe. Mexico continues to be one of the deadliest countries for environmentalists in the world. The government of France has ordered the shutdown of the direct action environmental group Earth Uprising, wielding powers it previously used to outlaw far-right movements. The order came after the French interior minister accused Earth Uprising of carrying out eco-terrorism at several recent high-profile protests. The group responded in a statement, quote, 
trying to silence Earth uprising is a vain attempt to break the thermometer instead of worrying about the temperature, unquote. The crackdown drew criticism from Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, who spoke Thursday from Paris. All over the world we're experiencing this, not the least, for example, here in France, just the other day, um, that activists are being systemically targeted with repression uh, and are paying the price for defending life and for the right to protest. Greta Thunberg was speaking at this week's summit for a new global financial pact in Paris, where climate activists are demanding world leaders mobilize trillions of dollars to finance a transition to clean energy and a loss and damage fund to help the global South deal with the worst effects of the climate catastrophe they did not cause. This is Inés Grace, a youth climate activist from Rwanda. We have recently seen the flooding in Italy, the wildfire in Canada. But the developing world is hit the hardest because they have the least resources to cope. For countries like mine, business, business as usual is a death sentence. Back in the United States, the Supreme Court has ruled against the Navajo Nation over claims the federal government has failed in its duty to address the tribe's water rights. Writing for the majority in Thursday's 5-4 to four ruling, Justice Brett Kavanaugh ruled the 1868 treaty that established the Navajo Reservation said nothing about an affirmative duty for the United States to secure water. The court's three liberal justices, joined by Neil Gorsuch in dissent, writing that the government has a duty to properly manage the water it holds for the tribe. Thousands of Navajo Nation members lack access to running water in their homes, even though the Colorado River runs along the northwestern border of their reservation. And in New York, immigration advocates have vowed to keep fighting after New York Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty refused to hold a vote on legislation that would have allowed undocumented people to enroll in New York's essential plan, government-subsidized health insurance under the Federal Affordable Care Act. The coverage for all bill had passed the state Senate earlier this month. Both chambers are controlled by Democrats. Nearly half a million New Yorkers are currently excluded from Medicaid and the essential plan health care coverage due to their immigration status. To see our interview with New York Assembly member Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas, who sponsored the bill, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the titanic disparity and how the world responds to maritime disasters. As many as 700 migrants are feared to have died in a shipwreck last week off the coast of Greece, but the stories receive far less attention than the search for the five passengers aboard a submersible to view the wreck of the Titanic. On Thursday, search efforts for the submersible ended after investigators found debris near the Titanic at the bottom of the sea. It's believed the five passengers died in a catastrophic implosion. The two vessels were lost at sea four days and 4,000 miles apart. The five men who lost their lives on the Titan have been getting wall-to-wall coverage in the media worldwide. Meanwhile, the estimated 700 who died when the Adriana sank off the coast of Greece, mostly women and children, have been essentially forgotten. Passengers on the Titan were wealthy. Two were billionaires. Each paid $250,000 for an adventure of a lifetime, a deep-sea dive to view the wreckage of the Titanic. 
Those crammed onto the ramshackle Adriana fishing boat were seeking not adventure, but refuge from war, poverty, climate change, or any of the many other life-threatening crises that force people to flee their homes with little more than the clothes on their back. They paid human traffickers some thousands of dollars to ferry them from Libya to Europe. Many of the passengers were from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Egypt, Syria, and Palestine. A multinational effort was launched to search for the passengers on the Titan submersible. Meanwhile, the Greek government's facing accusations that it could have saved the migrants aboard the doomed ship, but opted not to. The newspaper El Pais reports Greek authorities were tracking the ship for more than 12 hours and never activated a rescue operation even after the ship's engine broke down. We begin today's show with two guests. Georgos Kosmopoulos is a senior migration campaigner for Amnesty International. He's joining us from Brussels. And in Paris, we're joined, in Paris, we're joined by Laurence Bondard, spokesperson and operations communications manager for SOS Méditerranée. She's been on seven rescue missions in the Mediterranean. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, let's begin um, with uh, Laurence, uh, spokesperson for Mediterranean. If you can respond to what took place last week and continues to take place, um, and clearly, uh, when we don't know the migrants' names, when we don't know their stories, like we know those on the Titan, the Titans, um, it is hard to care. Talk about who died last week. Hi, Amy. Yes, it, it is very difficult uh, to relate and to understand what happens in the Mediterranean when it's uh, far and when you don't exactly understand what it means to be in the middle of the sea, uh, in the completely alone uh, facing with the strength of the elements and and having no one to hear your cry of despair and, and, and to come and rescue. The people that um, uh, flee via the sea and that take the risk to die, to seek safety, are people from very different uh, uh, regions of the world, uh, from uh, uh, the African continent, Asian continent, Middle East region. The, these are people, as you were describing, who are uh, fleeing their original countries for various uh, uh, reasons, from war to poverty, um, uh, different kinds of violence, and they end up in Libya, trapped in a country where they are um, facing a harrowing cycle of violence. Um, we hear recounts of uh, people who are uh, abducted, uh, detained in unofficial detention centers, beaten up with their family on the phone uh, to make sure that the family sells everything they have and, and provides as much money as possible. Um, so the people who take these unseaworthy boats that are critically overcrowded, without life jackets, often without food, enough food and water to do such ha hazardous and dangerous crossing, are people that are in the absolute despair. They will take any opportunity they have to just flee and try and seek safety. 
Giorgos Cosmopolis, you have said that this is a completely avoidable disaster. El País continues to expose what took place off the coast of Greece. Explain where the migrants were coming from on this overcrowded fishing vessel, what the Greek Navy knew, uh, when they knew it, and why this sunk. Uh, we don't know how many hundreds of people, in fact, have died, but it could be up to 700. Hi, Jaime. Thank you for, for having this all. Indeed, it's, it's, it's a tragedy beyond, beyond words, and it was completely preventable simply because Europe doesn't allow, doesn't afford safe and legal routes, pathways for these people to, to seek uh, uh, safety. And that's the beginning. That's the, the result of policies of uh, European member states who do not prioritize uh, uh, lives. Uh, hearing the account of, of uh, our other guest, I always remember my friend Ali when he fled, fled uh, Syria. He, he, he called me yesterday after the Cypriot. He told me a few years ago it could have been me, me and my children. He always tells me how it was the hardest thing he ever had to do, fleeing his own country among bombs, bombs carrying his, two, his three children in his arms, telling them, night and day it's gonna be okay and thinking inside him it's gonna be okay even if i have to die it's just to say that these people have absolutely no option nobody puts their family and themselves in such danger unless they have no other option and european politicians who very often now exp express condolences regret do very little to do the right thing to 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 have the safe and legal routes we also know that the creek coast Guard was alerted in this uh, latest CPLEC, they were alerted early on and they followed very closely uh, the CPLEC. There are a lot of questions who remain to be answered by the Greek authorities. Why they acted the way they did or why didn't they act in the way they should have uh, acted, especially as more information emerges, uh, uh, it was clear that the, 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 the vessel was uh, probably not seaworthy. We need an investigation that is thorough, that's independent, to come to the truth. We need to know the truth, and we expect from the Greek authorities now to, A, look after the survivors, make sure that families and their members have access and identify their loved ones, and, again, truth and justice for, for, for what has happened. I want to turn to Abdel Farid Ahmad, the father of 18-year-old Syrian migrant Mohammed Ahmad who went missing after that shipwreck off Greece. He said he doesn't know if his son is dead or alive. On Friday night, we lost contact with my son, and until now, we don't know anything about his whereabouts. The smugglers say they arrived on the other side, and until now, there's been no communication. We don't know anything about him. Drowned, alive, we don't know. If my son had work, he wouldn't have thought about leaving. If he had peace of mind or a good livelihood, he wouldn't have left. So, Giorgos, uh, if you could talk more about um, what people know at this time, what they're told, um, and also talk about your own family um, coming from the southern coastal town of Peloponnese. Uh, you've worked in the region as a volunteer. Uh, we just passed World Refugee Day. Yes, it's it's particularly stressful and and, and uh, uh, taxful for for taxing for me to think that this is a region, the Peloponnese, where all my family comes from. It's the same beaches where where me and my family spend our holidays, and it's becoming a, a, a cemetery for for refugees and migrants. Over thirty thousand people that we know of, and that's possibly the tip of the iceberg, have uh, perished in the Mediterranean again in shipwrecks that are completely. Uh, 
uh, avoidable. Right now, uh, um, people, survivors, have been taken to, to facilities uh, managed by the Greek uh, authorities, and uh, um, we understand that there has been some invest and one investigation opened by the Greek authorities into the events. We don't know the exact scope, but again, I have to repeat, it has to be a thorough and independent investigation to, to what happened. I also have to say that despite the, the, the negative rhetoric and toxic rhetoric very often by politicians, in Greece, in my own country, but also across Europe, the solidarity is strong. I've seen a lot of people aiding, running to, to, to help, providing for these people. They have done it again. They have done it in 2015. I was there when the thousands of hundreds of, uh, of uh, refugees from Syria came. And the, the ordinary people, as call them, they are there to help. And I do think that there is a lot more solidarity left in us, and it's proven every day. And Europe and European leaders must follow that lead, must follow the, the legacy of what happened in 2015 and solidarity by those people to show the way and provide, finally, safe and legal uh, routes for these uh, people. Otherwise, all the tears and all the condolences amount to nothing. They're almost hypocritical. And, uh, yeah, I, I hope, I really hope that this is the last Cypriot. Uh, I really hope this is the last time we'll be looking for survivors and hear testimonies like the ones we heard before because they're completely unavailable it's, and it's on us. It's on us to fix it. Laurence Bernard, I was wondering if you could talk about, is it pronounced Mare Nostrum? Uh, what this program was started by the Italian government in 2013, over 100,000 people rescued um, that year. What happened to it? Um, and if you can talk more about how to avoid these tragedies. Yes, the operation called Mare Nostrum in Italian meaning RSC was a European operation conducted by the Italian uh, authorities in between 2013 and 2014. In this um, time, in less than a year, this um, European operation that was uh, um, a military and a humanitarian operation, also dedicated to search and rescue, rescued um, over 150,000 people in less than a year. Um, it shows how possible it is, we know how to do, European member states know how to do, and maritime sectors know how to perform search and rescue. It means putting European ships at sea, having people that are trained and equipped and coordinated co uh, accurately and efficiently to organize searches and then rescue of boats in distress. It happened at that time in this operation, but this operation was ended in 2014 Due to a lack of European solidarity, the Italian authorities asked for European solidarity to ensure that this was financed um, and not only by the Italian uh, um, country and that um, the people that were rescued could be also taken care of by the European uh, uh, Union in, in its uh, entirety. And with this lack of solidarity, the operation, they decided to put an end this operation, and since then it was not replaced, only replaced by operations that were military and that were border defense opera uh, operations. No ser European search and rescue operation um, have been put in place since then. This is why SOS Mediterranean, we created ourselves as citizens um, eight years ago and other organizations, citizen organizations created themselves. It's to fill the gap left in the central Mediterranean. Uh, specifically in this region, in between Libya and Europe, that is completely left al alone. It's completely empty of European efficient search and rescue assets. 
Um, and this is why this is the hope that I, I, I'm, I've been hearing just now. It's, it's, it's a hope we all share, of course. We hope that this will be the end, that it's the last shipwreck uh, at all, and, and last shipwreck of this magnitude. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I don't have this, I, I don't hope, I lost this hope. I, I can tell you here and now, there will be other shipwrecks. Um, in the days to come, in the weeks to come, in the months to come, and, and, and most likely in the year to come, if nothing is done, there will be other shipwrecks, there will be other tragedies. Um, the only way to stop that, and it's not that complicated, it's to, it's to have this European solidarity uh, in, in place, a movement that organizes a European search and rescue operation in the Mediterranean, so that there is again real coordination, uh, efficient coordination. When we receive distress alert, it means that uh, maritime uh, uh, rescue centers coordinate, relay the distress alert, make sure that the ships around in the vicinity are able to assist, provide assistance, and then disembark in a place of safety. We know how to do. Uh, maritime world knows how to do. What we need is the, the political choices, is the, the, the will to do it. That's the only thing that is lacking. And talking about that will, I want to end with Georgos Kosmopoulos in Brussels. Do you have a message to the world's media, this, as we call it, titanic disparity, and how they cover the five people um, who died in that submersible? Um, the idea that that should be a model um, Blanket coverage um, when people die at sea, uh, using that model for and multiplying it many, many times over uh, for the number of migrants who have died at sea. The message you have to media responsibility. I think it's a message for all of us, including media, everyone who's at risk at sea, no matter where they come from, no matter which language they speak, their income. The, the societies they come from, we have to mobilize all our resources to help them with no reservations, no bad or ifs, and put human life on the very, very top of our priorities, not only in words, but also with actions. We need solidarity, we need search and rescue, we need safe and legal routes for everyone, and everyone has to be able to look in the eyes of the survivors and see we did what we could do, and this is not going to happen again. But so far, this is not what's happening. We have policies uh, in Europe that lead to these shipwrecks. That they are, uh, uh, these policies have a direct cause uh, uh, and effect with these shipwrecks uh, 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 we are seeing. So yes, we have the resources, we have the capacity, we have the technology, we have advanced. It's time to put human lives on the very top of our, our, our agenda and our efforts, no matter where these people come from. Yorgos Kosmopoulos, we want to thank you for being with us, senior migration campaigner for Amnesty International, speaking to us from Brussels, Belgium, and Laurence Bondard, spokesperson for SOS Méditerranée, speaking to us from Paris. Coming up, we look at the occupied West Bank as tensions soar, with Jewish settlers attacking Palestinian villages and Israel launching drone and helicopter gunship attacks. Stay with us. Everything under control Everything is under control
Call the Tune by Michel Ndegaechelo. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we turn now to the occupied West Bank, where tensions soared this week after Israel launched a massive military raid Monday in the Janine refugee camp, killing seven Palestinians, including a 14-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy. During the raid, which was met by fierce Palestinian resistance, Israel deployed U.S.-made Apache helicopter gunships for the first time inside the West Bank in nearly 20 years. On Tuesday, two Palestinian gunmen shot dead four Israelis near an illegal settlement in the West Bank. Settlers responded by attacking Palestinian villages, setting fire to homes and vehicles. One school was set on fire. Settlers were caught on video. tearing out pages from multiple copies of the Quran after they raided a mosque in the West Bank village of Urif. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, Israel carried out its first targeted assassination aerial strike in nearly 20 years. The drone strike killed three Palestinians, including a 15-year-old boy. This all comes as the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu's far-right government, has agreed to accelerate the process for approving new settlements in the West Bank despite criticism from the United Nations, European Union, and the United States. We're joined now by the Palestinian journalist Mariam Barghouti. She's a senior Palestine correspondent for Manda Weiss. She usually is based in Ramallah, but is joining us from New York City today. It's great to have you with us, Mariam. If you can talk about the escalating violence right now uh, in the West Bank. Thank you. It's good uh, to be here again, Amy. Thank you for having me. Right now, what we're seeing is an intensification of Israeli settler violence against Palestinians in the collective. So it's it's not just being intensified at the level of attacks towards Palestinians, but it's increasing in size. And this is reminiscent of what we have seen in 2021, um, when Israeli settlers rampaged through the old city of Jerusalem, as well as uh, cities in heartland Palestine, such as Yaffa, Tel Aviv, Haifa, um, chanting death to Arabs. And, and that's what they have been doing now, is killing Arabs. We've had almost 700 Palestinians killed since those chants um, began in 2021. And right now what we are seeing is a joining of forces once again between uh, Israeli settlers in uniform, such as the army and, and uh, border police, and Israeli settlers in civilian clothing, but also armed, attacking Palestinians under the, the false manipulated discourse that this is a response um, to, to a Palestinian militant operation. This is not a response to that. This is the status quo. This is the daily norm. Um, we saw it happen in 2015 when an entire Palestinian family in Nablus, near the location where the most recent arson um, attack happened in mass, an entire family was burned in Duma. Um, including an infant just a few months old and his mother and father uh, leaving the the last remaining uh, child in the family who was three at the time orphaned. So what we're seeing is an intensification to completely take over Palestine. And it's not just Palestine in, in the sense of the West Bank. This is Gaza. This is heartland Palestine and Jerusalem. And right now you're seeing attacks exactly the same way Israeli forces have attacked Palestinians in, in the West Bank, happening in the occupied Syrian Golan Heights. Um, so, so Israel is moving full force 
to do exactly what Blazel um, Smotrich, the current finance minister of Israel, called for in terms of Hawara and Nablus, and that is wipe it out. What they are doing right now is wiping it out. Um, the U.S. State Department's Office of Palestinian Affairs said it was appalled by the attacks on Palestinians by the Israeli settlers, adding, we call the Israeli authorities to immediately stop the violence, protect U.S. and Palestinian civilians, and prosecute those responsible. There are many also Palestinian Americans who are living there as well, right? Can you talk about the State Department's response? Did that surprise you? It did not surprise me. The U.S. State Department has rarely interfered or intervened um, on behalf of Palestinian American citizens in order to push forward for justice. A, more than a year later, in the assassination of the Palestinian American journalist Shirin Abu Akleh last year, who was also killed by an Israeli um, sniper shot in Jenin, still did not receive accountability. And come the dozens of others that were killed who are American citizens and zero accountability, anyone that was arrested in the Israeli military, known for torturing um, and mistreating their political detainees, the U.S. did not interfere. I think that the words, the, the, the language that they try to push forward as though they are truthfully and sincerely representing American citizenry, as, as they claim, is false. Um, what we see is, is the U.S. arming Israel continuously and consistently. What we see is the U.S. vetoing any um, uh, potentials or opportunity for actually holding Israel accountable. I have never heard of asking the butcher to be told to give themselves um, judgment and, and accountability. I have never heard of that dynamic except in this. During the raid uh, in Jenin, um, Israel deployed U.S.-made Apache helicopter gunships for the first time inside the West Bank in nearly 20 years, and also carried out its first targeted assassination aerial strike in the West Bank for the first time in 20 years. They have done that in Gaza more recently. Can you talk about the significance of this and what difference it means when uh, groups in the United States, particularly Jewish groups, um, uh, put pressure on the, is, on the U.S. government around the issue of weapons that, the U, that Israel uses coming from the United States? Thank you for asking that. Um, it's, it's, it's really important to recognize that just recently, the current Minister of National Security, Itmar Ben-Gvir, um, uh, who, who was actually denied service in the Israeli military because he was considered a, a terrorist um, and, and a threat to national security, is now the Minister of National Security, has called for a renewed uh, military operation called Defensive Shield. Now, Defensive Shield was a military operation in the early 2000s, between 2002-2003, that took place mostly between Jenin, Nablus, Beit Lahem, and Ramallah in the West Bank. And, and, and they blew up homes wall to wall. That is how they moved through cities. Um, and it was considered uh, to be one of the most destructive and tragic uh, military operations to have hit Palestinians in the West Bank. And, and Israel is being, um, it, it was investigated and it has shown the evidence that Israel has committed crimes against humanity and war crimes during these operations. A few months ago, Itmar Ben-Gvir called for Operation Defensive Shield 2.0, basically. 
Um, so, so that's the significance of using that drone for the first time in 20 years, because the last time it was used was 2006, where they targeted the young fighters at the time. And now those born in 2000, 2002, 3, 4, 5, at the peak of Operation Defensive Shield, have grown up and they have seen no change and they tried to confront back. And now Benigvita is asking to kill those. The children that grew up under nothing but war, who are mostly refugees on World Refugee Day, almost 80% of those killed in the last two years were refugees Israel in their refugee camps. Israeli settlers rampaged through Palestinian towns in the West Bank Wednesday, killing at least one person, critically injuring another, torching buildings and cars. This is a resident of the town of Termasaya. Dozens of settlers came here, around 200, 250 settlers. They tried to enter the courtyard. They set the cars on fire. They started shooting towards the house, using live bullets and stones, and they damaged the balconies. There were almost 14 family members at home, including women and children. But thank God there were no injuries. They tried to open the doors, but they were closed. Mariam, if you can talk more about um, what the Israeli government, how the Israeli government responds to Israeli settlers rampaging. So the Israeli government arms and provides protection to Israeli settlers rampaging. Um, they send in military forces with the settlers in civilian clothing who are armed um, as well in order to facilitate ease of movement across Palestinian towns and villages. What happened in Turmasaya was preceded in a similar occur occurrence just a few months ago, and it was preceded by a, a mass um, arson attack in Hawara near Nablus also a few months ago. So this is not an anomaly. It's not the exception. It's the norm. And, and this is why it is important for, for especially Jewish voices in the U.S. to continue tackling um, this issue where their, their name um, and their beliefs is being used to perpetuate crimes against humanity and to also benefit the weapons trade industry. It's not just the U.S. providing weapons to Israel. It is the U.S. and Israel um, tag-teaming to test those weapons on Palestinians. They have turned the Palestinian demographic into lab rats. I want to end with uh, Mohammed Al-Tamimi, the two-year-old Palestinian child who was recently shot dead by Israeli soldiers. Um, you have written about this and the personal effect it has on you covering this kind of brutality. Tell us about him. Um, Mohammed Al-Tamimi was a two-year-old boy who was killed as Israeli soldiers chased um, other Palestinian youth firing bullets uh, at the car near the village of Nabi Saleh in Ramallah. Muhammad was next to his father when the shooting happened. And as we know, as I have seen from testimonies and documentation, Israel does not discriminate indeed between child or adult, um, civilian or non-civilian, combatant or non-combatant. The father was injured. Muhammad, who is two, was killed. Um, and, and you need to understand that his mother is, is, is this young woman who I've known when she was a child um, who has helped protect adults from Israeli arrests who grew up in Nabi Saleh watching one death after the other. This is a small village and could not protect her two-year-old son.
I don't know what that does to a mother. I don't know what that does to a young mother, and I don't know what that does to a mother living under consistent trauma. That's what happened um, with Muhammad Tamimi, who is two. And that's what happens to dozens of Palestinian families. Um, and it's not, it's not to discourage us, but it is to empower us and, and make us say, no, yeah, we refuse this dynamic and reality. Well, not at our tax dollars. Marion Barguti, I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, senior Palestine correspondent Fernando Weiss, based in Ramallah, speaking to us, though, today from New York City. You mentioned the idea that Palestine is a lab. Coming up, we speak with the author Anthony Lowenstein about his new book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World, back in 30 seconds. The Milkman of Human Kindness by Billy Bragg. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. That's the title of a new book by the Australian journalist Anthony Lowenstein, who examines how Israel's military-industrial complex has used the occupied Palestinian territories for decades, he says, as a testing ground for weaponry and surveillance technology that they then export around the world. Anthony Lowenstein is the author of a number of books, including Disaster Capitalism and My Israel Question. He was based in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020. His most recent article for the Sydney Morning Herald is being Jewish and critical of Israel can make you an outcast, I should know. Anthony is joining us from Sydney, Australia. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Anthony. Your book has just come out. Uh, what do you mean by the term the Palestine Laboratory? Thanks so much for having me on, Amy. What I mean by that is that the occupation of Palestine by Israel is now the longest occupation in modern times, 56 years and counting. There's obviously been an occupation of sorts since 1948, but particularly since 1967. And during those years, what Israel has done very successfully from its perspective is find various tools and technologies to maintain and control Palestinians. And what they've done during that time, what Israel's done, is increasingly export those tools and technologies, but also those methods, those so-called counterinsurgency methods. So what I look at in the book, both being on the ground in Palestine for many years and also through declassified documents and various interviews across the world, is that you find in over 130 countries across the globe in the last decades, Israel has sold forms of anything from spyware, so-called smart walls, facial recognition tools, a range of tools of occupation and repression that have initially been tested in Palestine on Palestinians. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that the occupation of Palestine is not staying there. It's not a conflict that remains geographically based just in Palestine. It's become so-called global Palestine. How would you describe politicide? 
a term you use? Politicide, I think, was a term that was coined by Burrell Kimmerling, who is now uh, the late amazing academic. And he was talking really about the concept of a desire within many in the Israeli elite to find ways to destroy Palestinians. That not, not necessarily just through killing them, but also through extinguishing their political identity, their political self-determination. And when looking at it from the outside, one could argue that in some ways Palestinian resistance lives on. Your last segment talked about that very strongly. Palestinians mostly have not left Palestine. They remain there. But certainly from the current Israeli government, and I would argue for decades, there has been a sense that there's a way to crush Palestinian aspirations, their views, their political reality, their future, their horizon. And by doing so, Israel has increasingly marketed that to a global audience, including in its whole identity as an ethno-nationalist state. It's arguably the most successful ethno-nationalist state in the world, a Jewish supremacist state. And growing numbers of nations around the world from India and others look to Israel with admiration and inspiration. We just covered uh, Modi and the lavish reception he got by the president of the United States, mm. Biden, with the state dinner last night, the joint session of Congress. Talk about a little more about how India looks to Israel. Look, what India is doing under Modi, of course, is not solely because of Israel. But traditionally, Israel and India were not particularly good friends. But in the last 10 years or so since Modi took power in 2014, there's been a real ideological alignment, but the relationship is really twofold. One, it's a defence relationship. So India buys huge amounts of technology, defence equipment, spyware. I interview a number of people in my book, um, individuals in India, um, lawyers, others, who are spied on by Israeli spyware, particularly Pegasus by NSO Group. But also there's an ideological alignment, a belief that many Indian officials in the Hindu fundamentalist government there are openly talking about admiration for what Israel is doing in the West Bank and wanting to do something similar in Kashmir. And what I mean by that is they say that two reasons. One, because Israel gets away with it, no one's stopping it. There's a complete state of impunity that Israel has globally really. But secondly, this idea of bringing in, according India's view, um, huge numbers of Hindus to Muslim-majority Kashmir to settle that territory, to build so-called settlements akin to what Israel is doing in the West Bank. And I think there's a, a really disturbing ideological alignment. I would actually make the comparison between Israel and India today to Israel and apartheid South Africa back in the day nations that were very, very close ideologically and got inspiration from each other in the belief in Israel's case, of course, being a Jewish supremacist state and India's case being increasingly a Hindu fundamentalist state. And that, to me, is something that should concern people, including the U.S. president. So, Anthony, you talk about a Jewish supremacist state. I'm wondering if you could talk about your own background, something that you take on in this last piece you wrote. Um, mm. Being Jewish and critical of Israel can make you an outcast, I should know. And talk about your family, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, those who died in Auschwitz, those who didn't survive the Holocaust. Most of my family, sadly, Amy, like most Jews who lived in Europe, perished in the Holocaust, including Auschwitz. And the ones who got out and escaped Europe, particularly in 1939, just before the war started, escaped to wherever they were given a visa, Australia, Canada, the US, elsewhere. And the ones who came to Australia when I was growing up, I was born in the mid-70s in Melbourne. 
Israel was not the center of their lives, but Israel was seen as a safe haven. For those who don't know, as a Jew, I can go to Israel tomorrow, and within a few months, I can almost certainly be a Jewish citizen if I can prove that I'm Jewish. And I think for many Jews, including my family, there was a real reluctance and, in fact, a hostility to any kind of Palestinian reality, Palestinian story, even to meet Palestinians. I mean, as a young Jew, I never met Palestinians. And I think there is a change going on. But certainly when I started writing about this issue around 20 years ago, I wrote a, a book in 2006 called My Israel Question, where there were attempts by the Israel lobby in Australia to censor the book. There was attempts to pulp the book. There was condemnations of me in Parliament. I mean, it was ridiculous. The book became a bestseller thanks to all that ridiculous controversy. But over that time, my parents, um, both of whom lost most of their Jewish friends because it was the sins of the son. I was being critical of Israel. I was trying to humanise Palestinians. Now, I'm not the only Jew, of course, who are saying this, and I'm really encouraged in the last years. In Australia, the US and other Western countries are growing almost like a Jewish insurgency against particularly an older generation of Jews who doesn't want to humanise Palestinians and somehow believes that Jewish identity should be tied to Jewish supremacy. And so for me personally, I don't claim to be a victim. That story that you referenced at the beginning sort of gives a bit of a potted history of my life, but also explains that one does pay a price for it. Um, one does pay a price as a Jewish person. I'm a secular anti-Zionist Jew today. But I feel often that there is a real moral collapse in much of the Jewish diaspora in the last decades. It is changing, but not nearly fast enough. Anthony, um, we were talking about the horrific shipwreck last week of migrants, maybe up to 700 dead. Um, can you talk about Israeli technology used by the European Union to surveil and target asylum seekers? This really shocked me, you know, years ago when I started doing some work on this issue. The short version is that the European Union in the last years after 2015, when they were, in their view, overwhelmed by particularly Muslim refugees from Syria, Afghanistan and elsewhere, didn't want to ever repeat that. And they put in place almost a fortress-type Europe, which has occurred in the last years, which is a range of tools and technologies to keep people out. Uh, mostly Muslim and brown and black bodies, of course. And part of that arsenal is using Israeli drones. They're unarmed, but they are flying over the Mediterranean 24-7 and they're used mostly by Frontex, which is the EU's sort of border security arm. And they're the eyes in the sky, essentially. So they are sending back all these images 24-7 to Warsaw, which is where Frontex is based. And the EU has made a decision, of course, they don't admit this, but this is the reality of letting people drown. This is the new policy. There are very, very few rescue boats. The EU barely rescues anyone. There are some NGOs that are trying to do so, and I deeply admire what they're doing. So the Israeli drone becomes a key arsenal and part of this infrastructure of essentially allowing people to drown. And to me, it really goes to the heart of why... Israeli drones are used by the EU because they were battle-tested in Palestine over Gaza in a number of years, in the last 15 years. And you see this um, almost um, Israeli border industrial complex exported across the US-Mexico border, for example. There are massive amounts of Israeli surveillance towers made by Elbert, which is Israel's leading defence company, uh, dotted across the border. 
It's a key part of the U.S. arsenal across its border with Mexico. And why was that company chosen by the U.S.? Because, of course, it was tested first in Palestine. So to me, the real concern in the 21st century is as the climate crisis worsens, as resource wards are worsening, as refugee numbers have never been high since World War II, many Western nations are sadly making a choice to not welcome people in as we saw with the recent awful shipwreck or um, disaster in the Mediterranean, but in fact to build higher walls and more surveillance. And Israeli surveillance and technology and repression is part of that arsenal that many nations are now buying because it's been used, in their view, successfully on Palestinians in Palestine. And you have evidence of um, the United States in uh, particularly controversial situations um, working with Israel to perhaps have, for example, in Guatemala, uh, Israel uh, work there uh, so that the United States won't get um, uh, won't be held responsible. Absolutely. One of the things I document in the book really clearly is that over the last 50 years, a lot of nations that the U.S. was close to, Israel almost became an American wingman, often supporting, arming, training nations the U.S. even couldn't do officially because of some issue maybe in Congress. And that did include nations like Guatemala, including at a point where they were committing genocide against their indigenous populations. And one of the reasons that many of those nations, Guatemala, Honduras, Chile, under Pinochet, a range of other nations in Latin and South America, although of course it went far further, including in Africa and Asia, was that they these nations were really attracted by the idea of learning the so-called skills that Israel was gaining through its occupation after 1967. How is it managing the Palestinian population? How is it repressing them, essentially? And there's huge amounts of evidence through declassified documents and interviews, much of which is in the book, which really goes to the heart of showing that the US and Israel became almost like um, uh, invaluable partners during that period to the point where today, look, America remains the world's biggest arms dealer. 40% of the world's arms is sold by the US. Israel is now 10th. And just last week, in fact, Israel released its 2022 arms figures, 12.5 billion US, the biggest amount ever. And 25% of that was going to Arab autocracies after the so called Abraham Accords, the Trump deal from a few years ago. So we're talking about Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, and others. So what are they selling? They're selling repressive technology, spyware, um, intelligence gathering, a range of other tools to prop up. U.S. and Israeli-backed dictatorships in the Middle East. So this is what the Israeli arms industry is about. Like this, to me, is a not just a moral failing, but a really dark stain on the Jewish legacy 75 years after the Holocaust. Like this is what we've become, we meaning the Jewish population of the world. The legacy seems to be backing and supporting and arming the worst regimes in the world. Let me ask you about something you mentioned earlier, and that's NSO's Pegasus. Explain further Mm. how it's used uh, and how it is used to infect the phones, for example, of journalists, some, um, uh, for example, who are in jail, like in Morocco, as you talk about the Abraham Accords, uh, Omar Adi, who we interviewed Mm. before he was imprisoned and has been now for several years. Pegasus got a lot of attention in the last years, as viewers will know, as probably the most um, 
known or infamous Israeli spyware. Essentially, it's a tool that allows any um, government or military intelligence or police department to spy on someone's phone, iPhone or Android, and get all the information from that phone. And it's popped up in dozens and dozens of countries around the world. And I spend a lot of time in the book interviewing some of the victims of that um, surveillance in Togo, for example, in Mexico, in India. And Mexico, interestingly enough, is the biggest user of Pegasus by far. There is an absolute addiction in Mexico, both under right-wing governments and the current nominally left-wing government. Governments don't want to give this tool up. And it's not just Pegasus. Of course, there are many other Israeli companies doing the same thing. But one of the things that I explore in the book is that so much of the media in the last years around Pegasus missed the key point. It was almost framed as a rogue Israeli company doing terrible things around the world. But in fact, companies like Pegasus actually are only private in name. They are basically arms of the state. Netanyahu and the Mossad, who have been going to various countries in the last 10 years, I document this in the book, and this has also been shown by Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, often go to nations like Saudi Arabia, Rwanda and others, and they hold Pegasus and other tools as a diplomatic carrot. If you support us in the UN or elsewhere, we will sell you the most powerful spyware in the world. And, that, and it works because it's been sold in UAE and Saudi and Rwanda and many other repressive states. So unless there is a complete ban or massive regulation, which currently does not exist at all, these technologies will continue. And even if NSO Group disappears tomorrow and it's currently in financial crisis, Many other companies do exactly the same thing, and which is why Israel is now one of the leading spyware exporters in the world. Well, Anthony Lowenstein, I want to thank you so much for being with us, author of the new book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. If you want to see our interview with the now-imprisoned Moroccan journalist Omar Adi, as well as our other work um, talking to the University of Toronto Lab and others about Pegasus, uh, you can go to democracynow.org. Democracy Now! produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feldstein, Augusta, Messiah Rhodes. Um, uh, as well, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Teresena, Tammy Warrenoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkafte, Marie Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, Sanji Lopez, our executive director, Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now!